A lot of good people make bad decisions, but that doesn't make them bad people. The Fully Free campaign is a statewide campaign to end all permanent punishments for individuals after incarceration. And the reason why we decided to call them permanent punishments and not collateral consequences is because collateral suggests that they were accidental. And we don't believe that these laws were accidental. And so permanent punishments create this prison after the prison for individuals after incarceration. This is Justice Voices. Stories that need to be told. Voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. And I'm Leonard Joyner. Our guest today is Marlon Chamberlain, who lives in the Chicago area, where he manages the Foley Free Campaign of the Heartland Alliance. Mr. Chamberlain, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dave. Mr. Chamberlain, we're going to learn more about the Foley Free Campaign in our next episode, but before we hear that message, in this episode, we want to hear your personal story, including what led to a federal conviction for which you spent over a decade in prison. We want to hear about your experience in prison, with reentry into community life after you were released from prison, and most importantly, about the path after being released from prison that led you to where you are today. But before we get into that, we do want to give you an opportunity to briefly tell us what your Fully Free campaign is all about. What is it and why is it? The Fully Free campaign is a statewide campaign to end all permanent punishments for individuals after incarceration. And the reason why we decided to call them permanent punishments and not collateral consequences is because collateral suggests that they were accidental. And we don't believe that these laws were accidental. And so permanent punishments create this prison after the prison for individuals after incarceration. And I would also say Fully Free is about centering people with lived experience at the heart of our work to really drive the change that we're looking for. I think one of the best ways to understand that message is to first understand your own backstory as the messenger. So let's talk about your personal story. You've been to prison yourself, and Mr. Joyner's been to prison before. In your case, Mr. Chamberlain, what led up to that? I would say what what led me to federal prison, um, it all started with uh, at the time my fiance was was pregnant with my now oldest son. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I was I was a, a, expecting to be a father and really wanted to prepare myself financially to provide for my son. And I made a decision to start selling drugs. And really, that is the spiral that that sort of led me in and out of the system uh, until 2002, when I was indicted by the United States of America. Now, before that federal charge, had you ever gone to prison? I had been inside of, of sort of like a correctional facility, but it wasn't an actual prison. It was a place called RCF, which was a residential sort of correctional facility. And I was sent there for six months sort of like a diversion program um, versus just sending me to prison. So, no, I had never been to actual prison uh, prior to my federal case. So prior to the federal case, your, the sentences in any case that you had had before that had been relatively minor. Is that right? They had been relatively minor, and I received probation or either a fine. So they were hoping you'd kind of get the message and stop uh, doing the things that ultimately led you to go into the federal system. Absolutely. But failing in that, the next step was a big one because all of a sudden here you were facing a federal indictment and some very serious mandatory minimum penalties. A big step up. Absolutely. What sort of penalties were you looking at? So because of uh, prior drug convictions, what I learned in the federal system, well, I learned a couple things. <laughs> I learned about relevant conduct, which means that it doesn't mean, like relevant conduct means that if somebody says that I bought this amount of whatever it may be um, from you over a two-year period, that that could be added to, to your sentence. Um, and then because of uh, prior drug convictions, my sentence was enhanced because of a prior, uh, prior drug conviction. In the federal system, the mandatory minimum penalties are driven by the amount of drugs that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt 
But you're right, at sentencing hearing, when the judge is sentencing you, he or she is not limited by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The judge wants to know, well, tell me the rest of the story. Tell me the whole thing. I want to know all about you. I want to know the good, the bad, and that includes evidence of conduct other than what was included in the uh, charge itself. That's the relevant conduct you're talking about, and the judge can consider all that. And that can add up. It can. And you ended up, if I understand right from previous conversations, looking at a mandatory minimum 10 years, but because of a prior felony drug conviction in the state system, that was doubled to a mandatory minimum 20 years. Correct. So you were sentenced to 20 years in prison. I was sentenced to 240 months. Later, that was reduced because of legislation that was passed. Is that right? Yep. The Fair Sentencing Act. So how much time did you end up serving in federal prison? Uh, ten and a half years. Most of us have not been in prison. Most of us listening. And we'd like to know what that was like. So can you tell us about that? Let me ask you a question, though, Marlon. When they said 240 months, what did that feel like? You Apparently, if, it, if you were like me, I didn't know what 240 months was. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I still remember as as if it was yesterday when when the judge sentenced me, the the judge complained about the sentence that he had to to render um because he looked at my 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 background and was like, "I don't want to give this man 20 years." Um but when he read the sentence of 240 months, I was like you. I I was trying to calculate the math. <laughs> <laughs> to see how many years 240 months was. And then I broke down. Like, it was unbelievable that that here I was in court uh, receiving a 20-year prison sentence. And I also remember my, my sentencing date sort of came about unexpectedly. The date that I had scheduled that I was supposed to be sentenced, I was woke up one morning early and told that I was going to court. And I'm thinking like, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't have a chance to invite my family, like, like who am I going to have in the courtroom to support me? And I walked in the courtroom, and after I was sentenced, I was glad that my family wasn't there because I didn't want them to see me get see me receiving 240 months because I know that that would have that would have like sent them like crazy. This is something I'll comment on as a former federal prosecutor. I saw and prosecuted cases including Mr. Joyner's case, because he, too, was looking at exactly the same situation as you in a case where I was the prosecutor and he was the defendant. That's how we first met, on opposite sides of a courtroom, on opposite sides of the law. In Mr. Joyner's case, he'd never been to jail. So this was his first experience. He had a prior felony drug conviction, but it was in the state system where and was a, a pretty light sentence. And like you... All of a sudden, here you are in the federal system, and you're looking at a mandatory minimum 10 years in prison. But because of that prior state conviction for a felony drug offense, even though it was a relatively lenient sentence, all of a sudden, there's this huge jump to a mandatory minimum 20 years in prison. Now, you don't get a mandatory minimum 10 years without having been involved in a substantial amount of uh, cocaine or crack, but that jump is a big one. And sometimes, I have to tell you, I actually felt that some people had been set up, not deliberately, but just the way the system works, they'd been set up by consequences that happened in the state system that really were fairly lenient, that weren't sufficiently uh, serious to actually convince them to give up the the lure of being involved in the drug trade and, and the addiction is, that that can be, as Mr. Joyner has talked about in previous episodes, episode one and two of Justice Voices, and then all of a sudden you get caught up for one reason or another in the federal system, which may not be because of you. It may be because of the conduct of co-conspirators that are involved in the business with you. And here you are. You continue on in this relatively same conduct that you were engaged in before that was punished fairly lightly in the state system, and all of a sudden it's a mandatory minimum of 20 years in prison. 
that just has to be a crushing jump for you. Absolutely. I, I would say, too, though, prior to, to my arrest, I was tired. Like, I was, I was a, a fugitive for about 18 months, and that was the worst time of my life. And so when, when the U.S. Marshals arrested me, I always say that, that I felt like I was being set free from a lifestyle that I was ready to let go of anyway. Now, I'm not saying that I feel like I like necessarily had to go to prison, but I was ready to let go of that lifestyle. So it's, it's, it's kind of ironic that the day that they put handcuffs on me, I felt like that I was being set free. And I knew that even though I didn't know what the tunnel looked like on the other side, I knew that once, like, once I was done with this, that I would be able, or I thought or assumed that I would be done with this, uh, like, like once I was released from prison. For me, it was sort of bittersweet because I was tired of running and I was tired of living. Like I said, I was just tired of living that lifestyle and was ready to do something different. But I just didn't know how or what to do. Well, that is something that is oftentimes age related. How old were you when you were convicted in the federal system? I was 25 years old or 24 years old. Brain science today shows us that it's at about that age that the human brain for males is actually reaches adulthood or what we would call maturity, that the brain is matured. Before that time, even though we talk about you're an adult when you're 18, the brain doesn't know that. And males in particular, before age around, roughly around age 25, are more inclined to engage in riskier behavior, not thinking necessarily in terms of long-term planning. So it is ironic that you got arrested and are looking at 20 years in prison at about the time probably your brain was telling you, this is not what you want for the rest of your life. In any event, the judge had no choice but to sentence you to 20 years, and you had no choice but to serve 20 years until the law changed that allowed you to get out early. Mr. Joyner didn't get out much early. He got out at 17 and a half years, after which he and I met again <laughs> under circumstances we described in our first episode. Now here we are, friends and colleagues, and yes, and he's co-hosting this program. But one of the things that would really be interesting, getting back to this, uh, Mr. Chamberlain, you have been on the inside of prison. Mm -hmm. People like me have not. You experienced it and can see it from the inside out, that and the rest of the criminal justice system. I'm looking at it even as a criminal prosecutor from the outside looking in, even when I would visit a prison. What was it like to be in prison? Talk about day one. Talk about the first day, the first day, the very first day. What was it like for you? <laughs> so it, it was a huge adjustment. And, and I would just start by talking about like a lot of like the, the psychological sort of like like things that you deal with, like like letting go, like like really like sort of like getting to this point where I realized I didn't have control over anything that happened outside of, of the prison walls. So, so that was a struggle. Like even on my first day, like it was just like, I was still in shock or disbelief that I was taken away from, from my family. I was thinking about like, you know, like about my kids and like what they were going through it, so it was a range of emotions from from sadness to 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 guilt to shame. But I do remember my first day in FCI Milan, Michigan. I was in an orientation unit and I remember the the warden, Mrs. Marbury, walking in and sort of giving like her speech that that she would give to every new sort of like like group that comes into to Milan, Michigan. And she said, today is the first day towards your release. And I remember thinking like, this lady has to be crazy. <laughs> uh, like she's talking about release and I just got here. And so I had sort of like made my mind up that I wanted to do my time a certain type of way where I wanted to, to spend my time uh, really trying to learn and better myself. But that first, I would say my first year of incarceration was a huge adjustment 
because it's it's not easy to let go of things on the street. So I was still calling my girlfriend every chance I had to try to see what she was doing and to to see you know how my kids were doing. I was struggling when when I didn't receive mail. I was struggling with like the news of of like hearing from my lawyer because the federal system is different. And so the more and more I learned about just the 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 federal system, the more and more I became just like like sick. I couldn't believe that 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 this was happening. So it was just a it was a it was rough to to be just like brutally honest. Like my first year of incarceration was 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 to me the worst because there's also the fear of of the unknown. Like you don't know what you're going to get until you stand in front of a judge. And so even up until that point, I still had like this glimpse of hope that maybe, you know, that in some miraculous way that I wouldn't have to serve 10 and a half years in federal prison and that I wouldn't receive a 20 year prison sentence. So you go through a range of emotions and even trying to explain to your family uh, around what's happening is confusing because my family is like, well, why would you get 20 years and you didn't kill anybody? So even just like trying to explain to my family around what was happening was frustrating. So I would tell you my first year of incarceration was the worst of, of all of the time that I was incarcerated. That first year was the roughest. Well, it took me four years to come to the point to accept that, hey, I'm in prison. I got time to do. Hey, man, I was bitter. I was angry. I was mad with everybody. I thought everybody owed me something. Like you say, you feel your girl, you want her to be there for you more and more. You want her, in other words, feel like you wanted them to put their life on hold for you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so I understand where you're coming from because I've been there. Another question I like to ask you is this right here. When you first got into prison, I'm pretty sure they told you you're going to have to get a job. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. Yep. So my my first job in in FCI Milan was was I was a dishwasher in the kitchen. I think I made maybe 15. I forgot what 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 I was paid an hour, but it was some it was change. Uh it wasn't a it wasn't a a real salary or a wage. It was something that I think at the end of the month I might have received maybe $25. That too, I had to make an adjustment because here it was, I was used to living a certain type of lifestyle and now I'm a dishwasher. And I'm I'm accepting trays at a dishwasher window and dumping food or uneaten food onto a like a, a, a garbage disposal and then spraying off people's trays. It was it was I was soaked. It was nasty, but that was my first job in prison, and everybody has to work. So you have to find a job of some type within like the first week um, of you entering that institution. Interesting that you had an experience where you're essentially going through something similar to what the military goes through with boot camp, where you're initially you're, you're kind of being humbled, so to speak. Because out on the street, you were a big shot. And all of a sudden, you're not anymore. At some point, though, there was a turning point for you. Yeah, so I, I think the turning point for me started the day I was arrested. Because even, even in spite of all of like the adjustments that I had to make, I was still determined that like I wanted to do something different. So I would say my foundation started in church. Um, because all throughout, even my first year of incarceration, like I was really committed and faithful to like like whatever churches, like church services that I could go to or Bible study. So that is something that I continue to do. And really, that's what like really set me up to to really build relationships with with like a lot of the mentors that I developed over my incarceration. And, and just to give you an example of like how how this sort of came about. I can remember like when I first sort of like got to prison, I was adjusted and had sort of like gotten myself a, a somewhat used to being there. I would go every day after I would get off work from the kitchen, I would go to my unit, change clothes and would go to the basketball court. And this was like my everyday routine. 
And I remember my mentor walking past me one day and he asked me, he said, uh, Marlon, are you planning on going to the NBA when, when you get out of prison? And I'm, I looked at him like, okay, is he, is he trying to be funny? Like, what, like, what are you saying? And he was like, well, like, if you continue to go to the basketball court every day, like, what are you going to do when you get out? And so it was questions like that, that, that really provoked me to reflect and think about like, Marlon, what do you want to do when you get out? And so that's really sort of like, for me, like it was that moment to where I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to be too old to, to try to, to, to try to go to the NBA. So I do need to think about like, what else can I do? And I still didn't discover that. But what I discovered in that process was that I, I found that I had a passion to learn. And I just started reading books because there were not a lot of, of, of institutional sort of like classes or programming at FCI Milan. It was the men in the institution that were teaching classes that, that you could sign up for that supposedly would allow you to, for your points to be lowered, security level points to be lowered, or the case managers would encourage you to program so that like that they could sort of like help uh, help you navigate like whatever it is that you were trying to do. If you were trying to move closer to home, if you wanted to transfer to a camp, it was certain things that your case managers would, would like strongly encourage you to do. And so I just took it upon myself to 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 sign up for whatever classes I could sign up for. And then I would build relationships with the men that would all that were also serving time outside of those classrooms to learn about just different things like the financial the financial markets, real estate, whatever whatever I could learn, I was signing up to take the class and then I just started building relationships with like-minded individuals. You know, you mentioned mentors and that this mentor asked you if you were going to be in the NBA since you were spending all your free time out there on the basketball court. Was this mentor somebody from the prison staff or this is as a fellow inmate? So he was he was I, I don't use the word inmate. So I would just say he was he was someone who was also serving time and he also was serving a 30 year sentence. And so when when I met uh, Yuduko is his name, who was my mentor, he had been incarcerated, I think, maybe about 15 years so he had been there for a while and was well-respected in the church and just in the institution. So he was your mentor by your choice then? He was my mentor by my choice. Somebody that you looked up to? Yep. You've mentioned that there were the classes and things of that sort that you were taking were being taught by fellow people who were in prison with you, incarcerated. Yep not by the prison staff or people coming in. That's interesting. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so so a lot of like the educational classes, workshops were were ran by individuals who were incarcerated. So an example, uh, Martha Stewart's co-defendant, Sam Weisel, taught a, a philosophy of business class. That I was able to 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 participate that I was able to participate in, and I was also able to build a relationship with him outside of that class. And so, if if I was reading books and had questions, I could go right to him and and ask questions about uh, a business plan, a business idea. So, one of the unique advantages about the federal system is that you're incarcerated with people from all walks of life. So everyone in the federal system is not in in the prison for drugs. So you have a wide range of people from bank fraud to all type of just different levels of 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 criminal activity. But there are also people who who know what they know. And I would always say, like, just being from the south side of Chicago, there were certain people that I had an opportunity to be in proximity of that if I was in my normal, like, regular, everyday neighborhood, that I would not have access to, to the type of information um, that I had in the, in, the, in the prison system. So it's almost like you can go one or two ways. You can choose a track where you choose to learn from people. And, and sort of discount like what they were arrested for. 
or you could choose to to build relationships to learn how to go home and to become a a, a better criminal. But it's it's totally up to you. Yes, I I totally agree with that. You know, like you say, you meet people from every walks of life. You know, and uh, I learned a lot from them. They taught me a lot from the pause aspect. Even though they had went to prison for whatever they was in there for. I didn't pay that no mind. I learned what I could get from them, and I took the positive, and I left the negative there. Because you have to make a decision, as you said, you have to make a decision on what you want to receive and what you don't want to receive from them. In the federal system, as you say, there's people from all walks. And Mr. Joyner, for a period of time, you were even in a cell right next to Larry Hoover, the head of the Gangster Disciples. MCC Chicago. Yeah. Metropolitan Correctional Center. One of my former defendants, after he got out, he and I reconnected and he said, Dave, what do you think a bunch of criminals all crammed together all day talk about? Crime. How to commit it and how to get away with it. Prison is crime college. That's what he said. Mr. Chamberlain, what do you think about that? You mentioned that it's almost like two tracks. Is there another educational track there that people could be on that was different than the one you were trying to be on? I think it's all about perspective. I think for me, I sort of saw prison as as college and I saw it as a way that as as Mr. Joyner talked about, I sort of built relationships with people that were like-minded. But I didn't I didn't separate myself from some of like my my childhood friends who chose a different track because I would say that I think there's more than even two tracks. I think there's a track for people who, who just want to work out and watch TV and, and that's all they want to do. But I think it's about perspective. For me, I took advantage of the relationships that I could build to learn more about myself, to think about like, like as far as educational wise, I've always been an entrepreneur. I think I just, I invested my time and energy in things that were illegal. So for me, it was an opportunity to learn from, from business owners, from bankers, from, from stock market traders to, to people who that were doing just like different, like different career fields. Like I had an opportunity to hear like what that life was like and then also learn some like some of the mistakes and the lessons that they made that that in like landed them in prison like greed what i discovered was that greed not only impacts people of color but greed impacts everyone and so a lot of people were were in prison because because of greed and some some individuals would share those lessons and and talk about the mistakes that they made and and how they went on a downward spiral. So there was a lot of sort of for me, it was just a learning environment. And and that's how I saw it. Like I saw it as every day when I wake up, like my goal was to learn one thing, at least learn one new thing. And and that's how I woke up. I would stand in when we would wait in line to go into the chow hall, I would bring books. So while I was waiting to go into the chow hall, I would be reading my books. So I tried to use my time wisely in a way to where I could educate myself throughout my entire incarceration. And so I think it's about perspective as far as which track you choose to sort of walk alongside. And I would also say, too, I also saw a lot of people who had a lot of like just like a, a like a lot of mental disabilities that I think they were just thrown in jail versus really trying to get people that like the help that they needed because I heard a lot of one of the other things that I heard a lot of stories about was just the the trauma that people experienced that sort of pushed them into a, into the lifestyle that they were living well with that being said first of all Explain to them what you mean by chow hall. What do you mean by that? The chow hall is where everybody or each unit goes to eat. And so this is where we go to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that the chow hall process, where the way it was in, in Milan was the cleanest unit. They would they would do like a they would come out and do like an inspection of of every unit on the compound. And then they would, would grade the units 
and the units with the highest scores would, would, would be able to eat first in the chow hall. And so if your unit was last, sometimes you could wait anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to eat breakfast, well, breath, well lunch and dinner. And so there was a, a long line across the compound waiting to get into the, the chow hall where you have anywhere from 500 to 700 people all eating at one time. Okay, with me, I was at FCI Fort Dix, New Jersey. We had 5,000 inmates there. Can you imagine what that chow line would like? Ooh. Let's turn to this kind of metamorphosis that you went through, Mr. Chamberlain. It sounds to me like you're saying that you were on all three tracks prior to prison. You were on the criminal track, the crime track, and uh, the crime college track. Then when you got into prison for a time, you were on the just passing time, doing the time track. And then you got on to let's make the most of this and let's build this into something so that when I get out, I can I can build a new life. And uh, so you were on all three of those tracks at one time or another. Mr. Joyner, just to set up this question I'm going to ask you, Mr. Joyner, while he was the latter part of while he was in prison, started a book, an autobiography that he ultimately ended up, after he got out, he published, called L.J.'s Cocoon, L.J. for Leonard Joyner. The subtitle of it was Going to Prison Saved My Life. And in it, he talks about this, you know, he makes the analogy to a, a butterfly, you know, being in its cocoon and then coming out of the cocoon. And in our first interview, I asked him what would have happened if you had only been sentenced to five years in prison. And he surprised me. And he said, I'd have probably gone right back to the criminal lifestyle that I'd been before because he said this, this, the street and uh, street crime is addictive. He said, I would have felt the street calling to me. Now, in your case, at what point during your experience in prison do you think you had served let's just say, enough that you would not have gone back, that you were on a different trajectory in your life, you were on a different track in your life, how much time would that have taken? So I don't know if, 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 I, could, if I could accurately say like how much time, but, but what I will say is in 2006, on March 31st, I received a, a surprise visit. And in this surprise visit, my auntie drove three and a half hours to tell me that my mom had passed from a heart attack. And so at that point, I had been incarcerated for four years. And when I lost my mom, like for me, that was like me burning up the, the, the boat and saying that I could never go back. So I think in 2006, like I had, I was like, like determined that like, even those sort of like, like thoughts of potentially like going back, like were, were erased. And that was four years in. But I would tell you, like I said, the day that I was arrested, I was just tired. Like I was tired. It was, it was just like, I knew that, that, that there were other things that I was called to do in life. I was just tired and ready to do something else. Like I said, I just didn't know what that was. Um, so for me in 2006, after being incarcerated for four years, I was done. In a mandatory sentence system, people on all three tracks are essentially treated the same. And so you're going to serve the same amount of time no matter what track you choose while you're in prison, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing with your life, no matter what threat or lack of threat you pose to society if you were to be released. Now, what you do may change the which institution you're in, what level of institution you're in, from a maximum security at the high down to prison camp, down at the low end. But you're essentially going to serve the same amount of time in a determinate sentencing system, sometimes called the truth in sentencing system. In an indeterminate sentencing system, they look at you as an individual. And our tools for assessing people's level of threat that they may pose if they were released 
or the risk that they would return to crime, threat, and risk assessments are much better today than they were years ago when the movement was toward truth and sentencing systems, like the federal system is today and like Illinois' system is. Anyway, I, I just, it just is something that weighs in my mind as a former prosecutor. Over-incarceration seems to be a major problem for a lot of the people that are sent to prison, probably most of them. And yet under-incarceration is a problem for some of them because if you're on that track to become a more educated and dangerous criminal when you get out than when you went in because you went to crime college, then it doesn't make as much sense to be letting them out. But treating everybody one size fits all doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I would agree. And I would also say that even even during the entire time that that I sort of hustled in the streets, I never liked it. I was addicted. Like initially I started off like this was my my plan to to help provide for my family. And then I got a, I became addicted to a certain type of lifestyle. And I would also say I think back to to what I feel like was a crucial moment. When my girlfriend at the time was pregnant, I went to my father, somebody who this would be a perfect opportunity for dad to sit son down, the son down and say, son, like, here's some opportunities like you can do this. And the advice that I received from from my father and I love him, God bless him. But he told me to leave and, and to never go back. That was his advice to to his son as far as like what I could do to, to, to prepare myself to provide for my, for my son. And that was advice that I knew even as a, a 19 or 18 year old, I knew that that was bad advice. And so I, I just continued to do like this, like this, like I was looking at like my so-called circle of advisors and and when I would talk to people, it's almost like if if you live on the west or south side of Chicago and in, and in a lot of these neighborhoods, sometimes drugs or hustling becomes a way out or you think that that is your only way out and it becomes a way of survival and you become addicted, especially if you if you grew up poor. And now all of a sudden you're able to, to provide for your family and take care of your mom and so I would also just add to that that I think a lot of good people make bad decisions, but that doesn't make them bad people. Exactly. And, and I would also say that there are a series of steps that could have prevented me from even going into the prison system, but there were a lot of things that were missed. Because even in my first case, if somebody would have sat me down and said, Marlon, why are you doing this? I was at a place to where I would have been open and honest and said, like, I need help. I don't know what to do, but I want to be a father. I want to provide financially for my for my for my kids. But that didn't happen. And then when you go to prison, it's like it's like this macho thing, because like I've yet to meet one person who enjoyed that lifestyle. I'm sorry. They can say that they enjoyed it. But but when when we sitting in the room and, and really talking for real, I heard a lot of good people say, I, I hate that I even picked it up or I did this or I wish my life would have been different. So I would just just I just want to echo that that even because people are in prison, that doesn't necessarily make them bad people. They're just people who made bad decisions. And I think it's it, it helps when you learn the story behind why people make certain decisions. Because even people who carry guns, like if you live on the west or south side of Chicago, a lot of people carry guns for protection because they're scared and they don't trust the police to really protect them. Well, the police can't really protect them. And because that's not the, they're more reactive than they are proactive. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I have long felt is that if you really want to be a crime fighter, an effective crime fighter, it's not necessarily by getting tough on crime and sending people to longer and longer prison sentences. You get tough on crime by addressing the root causes of the crime. Absolutely. Which, which is if there are. It, let's say you live in a community 
where the only thriving business is the crime business. Well, if you're an up-and-coming young man or a young woman and you want to get ahead in life, what kind of business are you going to go into? Well, if that's the only business that's really thriving and that you can get ahead, of course you're going to go into that, especially in your younger years, your teenage and, and, and emerging adult years in the early 20s. Now, if there are viable alternatives to crime before prison and after prison, then people are less likely to be in prison or return to prison. So this is an important part of the reentry component of what we want to talk about. At some point, you found out that you were not going to serve 20 years in prison. You were only going to serve, well, I say only, you were only going to serve a little over a decade. But it was a lot less time than you had thought when you initially got in. So what did you do to prepare yourself at that point for getting out? And what was it like to get out of prison? I would tell you that that my preparation for release started like from from day one. And and once my sentence was reduced to 14 years, I knew that I was eligible for the drug program, which which was uh, really it was a program about cognitive behavioral therapy, which really encouraged me to reflect and learn more about myself. But I think once my, my sentence was reduced to 14 and I was trans transferred to Yankton, South Dakota, I instantly found a job in the educational department, really working to prepare other uh, men for release. And, and in that process, I just began to read like certain just different opportunities that I could take advantage of, what I could do as soon as I came home. But I, I really stayed the course of just like continuing to learn. And, and and really did that up until I was released. I was I, I was able to to participate in a college writing class where I wrote two essays that were published in a book called 4 p.m. Count. One of the essays that I wrote was about the value of education. And the second essay I wrote was about a word called serendipity. And the the story behind this word was that in my second year of the college writing class, I didn't want to do it because I was about maybe about two months from being released. And so I was like, you know what? I just really want to sort of like, like just sort of like just chill. I don't really want to take any classes. I'm almost out the door. I just want to, you know, sort of just get myself mentally prepared. And I was in the, the library one day and I was reading the Wall Street Journal and I read a, ran across a story around this word serendipity, which means finding something of value without expecting to. And so when I read this word, I started writing. And what I did was I wrote a story about my period of incarceration, but I wrote it thinking like when I was sentenced to do time, I was only expecting to do that time. Like that's all my expectations were that I'm going to do time. But but what I discovered was that the relationships that I had built in prison had really helped me become the man that I am today. And so I still live by that word. And so I would tell you that what I did to prepare myself for, for my release was just continued learning, continue building relationships. And then once I was out, it was the same thing. Like I came home with, with that mindset of out. And then also I had grown. So as far as like me being mature, like I didn't care what the crowd was doing. Like I wasn't afraid to do the opposite of what everybody else was doing. And so I continued that, like that was something that I developed inside of prison. And, and once I was out, I've always been that person to where even if you were about to do something negative and you saw me, it would be like, Marlon, no, I don't even want you to see this. Or can we talk about this? So I've always been like throughout my, my period of incarceration, I was seen as this this guy who was really serious about changing his life. And, and so because people knew that it was certain things that people wouldn't even bring around me or if they saw me, they would go the opposite way. So you're talking about is, while some people may have been going to crime college, you actually had a reputation and had developed associations while you were in prison that were a positive influence on you. You were a positive influence on people. And Absolutely. people were a positive influence and mentors to you. 
Absolutely. Yep. I used to tell people that I was either in one or two positions. I was either a student or a teacher. I was never in the middle. Either, either if I was on a conversation, I'm learning from you or either I'm teaching. But I was never that person that was just wandering around aimlessly with nothing to do. Like I was very intentional around who I built relationships with. If if I learned that somebody was on a compound that was a millionaire that was selling real estate, I would start strategizing on how do I build a relationship with this person to learn what he knows. And, and whatever I had to do to learn from that person, I would do it. And that's something that I that I continue even after my release. After being in prison for all this time, over a decade, tell us about your release. Tell us particularly about day one. What was that first day like? What was going through your head and what was happening on that day as you walked out of the prison? So the my first day, I, I, I had sort of like a range of emotions. Like I was sad because I was leaving leaving people who had become my family. So my best friend and a lot of people that that I had spent a substantial amount of time with, I was leaving. So I was sad. But then I was also excited because like I knew or I assumed that this would be sort of like a new start for me. Like I, I would be able to see my family, my kids. I would be able to move forward without, you know, having to worry about the police looking for me or looking over my shoulder. But then I think also reality began to set in. Like even as I like was on the Greyhound bus and, and we arrived in Omaha, Nebraska, and the bus station is close to a police station. So I remember watching like police cars, like like just like pulling in and dropping off people who had just been arrested. So it took me back to that day where I began to think about like, wow, I can remember when when I was in that position, um, when I was just coming into the system. But it was a, a wide range of emotions where it was it was also just the fear of of the unknown because I didn't know you know like what I was getting ready to face, what obstacles I would have to jump over and. But what I soon discovered, discovered that there was a web of laws that would constantly remind me that I have a record and that there are certain sort of places that I can't be or go or apply for because I have a record. And we're going to talk more in depth about that in our next episode that we want to record here, where we're going to talk about your Foley Free campaign. But where did you go that first night? Where did you spend the first night? The first night I spent on a Greyhound bus traveling from Omaha to Chicago. And I think we arrived in Chicago. I think it was around maybe like 5.30 or 6 o'clock that morning. And then I caught a, a taxi to the federal halfway house on, at the time it was on Ashland. So with that being said, Marlon, let me ask the question because I, I rode a Greyhound bus home too. How much money you had and where did that money come from? So I didn't have any money. They they did purchase me the the Greyhound bus ticket, but I didn't have any money. Or if I did, I think they gave me a couple dollars to to get me something to eat. But I didn't have any money. Now I was I was blessed that I have a a real close friend of mine who lives in Omaha, who gave me like a couple hundred dollars. But as far as the institution, they bought my my Greyhound bus ticket, and and that was it. Did you have an ID? I did not have an ID. So you didn't have any money and you didn't have any ID when you got out of prison? Nope. Nope. I had a supervised release form that was like this paper that if I was stopped, I could show people this paper to say like, I just, I was just released from prison. Did you have a photo ID? I had my prison ID. Was that good enough? No, not, not. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> no. You got you your picture on it. No, it wasn't. That wasn't what that wasn't that wasn't good enough. <laughs> it, it had a number on it too. Yeah, it had a number on it. Zero, one, zero. Mine one oh six four two oh two six. Yeah, mine was zero 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 seven seven two nine oh two seven. How come you hadn't forgot that number yet? It's it's ingrained. <laughs> because that's how they see you in prison. They don't see you by your name. They ask you your number. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
So after being away in prison for over a decade, what were some of the surprises or new things that you encountered after coming home or coming coming out? So I would say first, I remember going to Kmart to to buy like hygiene products and I got a headache from from trying to decide what brand of toothpaste I wanted because I wasn't used to choices. I would also say there was a huge, the biggest adjustment, I think for me, like there was, that was the, the adjustment with technology. Like I didn't know how to pay for a bus ticket. It was certain things I was afraid, like driving. It took some time for me to, to get used to driving again. But I would say the biggest adjustment was with my family because like I had been gone from my, my children's life for 10 years and so there was just a lot of just like challenges with me relearning my kids because now when I left, they were, were five and six and now I, I return home and they're teenagers in high school. So that was the biggest adjustment, just relearning my kids and, and learning how to, to be a father after, after like, like being like gone for, for a decade. So that was the biggest challenge. And then I think, too, just like certain things that like like Chicago was different. Like when when I left the the expressway wasn't five lanes, it was three lanes or four lanes. So it was just getting used to to seeing all of the, the like just the, like the different neighborhoods and neighborhoods as I had known them were not the same. But but I would say the biggest challenge was really with my kids. Mr. Joyner, tell Mr. Chamberlain about your experience learning about cell phones. Well, or, you know, when I first, when, you know, since I had, when I left the street, we had pages. We had pages. So when I got out, we had little thing, little cell phone thing. I didn't know how to turn it on. I didn't know how to work it or nothing. A four-year-old child showed me how to work it. Do you know how embarrassed that must have been to me? A four-year-old got to show me something. Another thing, speaking about your children, I to share with mine. I had a five-year-old, 11-year-old, and a one-year-old. The one-year-old was 18 when I got out. The five-year-old was 22. The 11-year-old, she like 28, and the whole family got a whole family. So one of the things I set mine down and talked to them, told them, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do to give this time back to you guys. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can say. But the only thing I can ensure, y'all, if you give me the opportunity, I would be the best father and friend that I can be to you. That's all I can say. And he's done that. From my observation, he's... Being a good good dad and uh, a good grandpa. Thank you. Yep. Yes. It's and another an thing that I think that I see in both of your lives is as you went through the process of reentry and making these transitions, you both in one way or another ended up trying to look after the people who have who are following you out of prison to try to smooth the path for them. Mr. Joyner is a mentor. In, the, uh, in his Shifting into New Gear program, he helps people when they get out of prison to adjust. He helps them to navigate their way because there was nobody there to help him. So he tries to help them to find their way through the resources, solve the various problems that they face. And, and you, Mr. Chamberlain, you ended up with the Fully Free campaign. But before that, there were some other things that happened. So tell us about the path you took after you got out of prison. It took you to where you are now. Yeah. So while I was still in the halfway house, I met Eddie Boganegra. Well, first, let me go back. So in the halfway house, if if you have limited movement, well, you have limited movement. So I would sign up for, for any opportunity to go hear someone speak, to see documentaries, whatever I could do to, to move around from, from the halfway house. And... I met Eddie Boganegra, who was uh, he came into the federal halfway house and showed the documentary, The Interrupters. And at the end of the documentary, Eddie went on stage and sort of talked about his experience and how he had been in prison and how he was doing community organizing work. And so there were 40 people 
who went up to Eddie and Eddie gave us all his card. And Eddie said only two of us followed up. And I was one of the two. And from that relationship, Eddie, Eddie has a, a great tendency of just throwing people out in the water and, 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 and you have to learn how to swim. So Eddie invited me to a legislative meeting with, at the time it was the Senate president, John Cullerton. And from that meeting, I sort of realized that like, this is where I need to be. Like my voice is important. And not only is my voice imp voice important, I also want to organize other directly impacted people so that their voices could be heard when we think about policy and how we create policy that impacts us and our neighborhoods. And so from that meeting, I started volunteering with the Community Renewal Society for a year. I had started a painting company where I hired 10 formerly incarcerated people and we were doing well. And then after a year, I was asked to come on board as the, the lead organizer with the Community Renewal Society. And I was asked to lead an initiative called FORCE, which was an acronym for Fighting to Overcome Records and Create Equality. And this initiative was led by directly impacted people in partnership with churches. And the goal of this organization was really policy or policy change work. And so in my three years with the Community Renewal Society, I was also a part of the Rocky Coalition that that is comprised of C Community Renewal Society, Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, Cabrini Green Legal Aid and Heartland Alliance. And in total, we passed 10 bills that either expanded opportunities for people with records or either reduced lifetime barriers for people with records to work in hospitals, schools, park districts, etc. The largest, most impactful bill that we passed was the seal and expansion bill, which at the time of our work, there were only nine convictions that could be sealed. And now there are hundreds of convictions that could be sealed. And so after doing that work for three years, I went on to do violence prevention work with Heartland Alliance and Ready Chicago, which is a, a 18 trans a 18 month transitional jobs program that offers cognitive behavioral therapy. I uh, did that for three years and then I went to Safer, the Safer Foundation for a year and helped them build out a statewide alliance for reentry and justice. Uh, and then I started with Heartland Alliance in March of this year as the campaign manager of, of the Fully Free campaign. I would also say someone else who was very instrumental and in even where I am today is Charles Perry. Because when, when I first met Charles Perry outside of prison, I remember Charles Perry telling me, Marlon, volunteer, just volunteer, like get involved wherever you can, just sort of plug in. And I remember him telling me that because he volunteered so much, people assumed that he worked for someone. And he said one day somebody just asked him like, hey, who do you work for? And he told him, like, I don't work for anybody. And they offered him a job. And so Charles Perry was the one who really sort of like, like, like really like set me on like this path of saying, like, Marlon, just volunteer, like and, and, and build relationships. And, and that's what I've done since I've been home. Is this the job area was in Oxford, Wisconsin? This is the prison? Yep, yep. Uh, I'm working on trying to get him to be on the show as well. So. Absolutely. Yeah, Charles yeah. Perry Charles Perry was even even in even while we were incarcerated, Charles Perry and I would host the church would host a basketball game where we would open it up to the entire like compound. And what we would do is I was the the lead person for the 35 and under and Charles Perry was the lead person for the 35 and older. And we would have a game where, where the young folks would play the older folks and, and they beat us up pretty bad. But even in prison, Charles Perry was a was just a, a, a positive like person like like he was a model in prison. And, and even after prison, like he has continued to, to be a positive model for for a lot of individuals. Yes, he was in the cooking school with me as well in Oxford. Yep. So he's a chef by trade as well. Now, just an observation. As you're talking about these people that are having the most influence on you, of course, there's people that are in the halfway house or in uh, these institutional settings. When you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, that's something that wasn't delivered by other people who were incarcerated with you. Those were professionals, I presume. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, cognitive behavioral therapy has been demonstrated in the Illinois prison system as being the most cost-effective program that exists in the uh, prison system for reducing recidivism, meaning recycling of people back to prison after they get out. You've got to get your head straight before you can get your life straight. It's interesting that you bring that up because that's something that has a lot of impact. Other than that, though, most of the people you're talking about are people who are themselves returned citizens who've Mm -hmm. gone to prison and who got out and are now engaged in activities and programs, building programs to keep people from committing crime to go to prison in the first place or to avoid returning to crime after they get out of prison and to make a a successful go of it, uh, including Eddie Bocanegra, Mm -hmm. who, who I met when I was in the governor's office previous administration as director of public safety policy. I heard him speak at an event. I was impressed. I got together with him. Uh, We sat down. I listened to his story, which is quite a story. And Mm -hmm. you see where he is now and the influence that he's having now. And I told him at the time, this is a story that needs to be told. And that was part of of what led to Justice Voices was actually that conversation with Mr. Bocanegra, and we hope to have him on this program soon. But what are your observations about the influence of people who are returned citizens, who are formerly incarcerated people who've gotten out, and who are now, just like you've described, in prison? Once they're out of prison, they're also helping each other out. Can you comment on that? No, I think... I think for me, I used to say to people in prison, the people who I built relationships, like deep relationships with in prison, like I knew that these relationships would continue outside of prison. And I would just say that I feel like to me, most of the 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 folks that I know that are directly impacted, like they were talented before they went into prison. It's just that talent had it hadn't been cultivated and 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 folks were not given like an opportunity. I would tell you that I don't believe that I'm exceptional, but I believe that I've been exposed to exceptional opportunities. And so I think just like there's something about and it's hard to explain, but there's something about the the relationships that I built in prison that are just different than the ones that I have out here. Some of it be, could be because we spent so much time together that even if I didn't serve time with you, like me and Mr. Joyner could probably go out to eat and talk as if we've known each other for forever because yes. it's just that it's just that connection of like knowing like that you understand like and then also now we're on a different path that we can relate to. So there's a lot of just like connections that we can make that that and then too like that's a to me it's also like like my support network and my accountability because if I call Charles Perry or Eddie or Quentin or Mr. Joyner or any of these people and say, hey man, I'm having crazy thoughts about you know doing this or that, like I would I would without a shadow of a doubt know that they would be like, Marlon, where are you? I'm coming. I'm coming to you. Let's talk. Don't move. I'll be there in a second. So there's something about those relationships that 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 I built that like it's just different. And I don't know how to explain it. Like I have childhood friends that I grew up with and there's a disconnect in how we talk and what we talk about. And they've never been to prison. But since I've been home, like I've enrolled in school, it's so many accomplishments that I've been able to do where when I look at them, they're still moving the same like prior to like how they were before we went to prison. Exactly. And I still love them because they're my childhood friends, but those are different relationships from the relationships that I have with people that are just directly impacted. Exactly. So when we're trying to build programs and uh, systems that help people successfully transition from prison to community life without going back to criminal lifestyle or criminal acts, what are the, what are the essential elements of that? Or what are the biggest influences? So I, I would say 
what I think the influences should be is myself, Mr. Joyner, and all of us who chose a different track. And I think you can systematize and create programs based on our experiences that could really help people. So I would say that you have to center the leadership of those that have been directly impacted to help sort of lead this work and not take an idea here and an idea here and try to try to pull something together. Let us lead the work. Let us lead the programming. I, I would also say the flip side of, of the recidivism rate, there's a huge percentage of people who have been able to get out and stay out. And so the, the, to me, the wisdom is there that there's wisdom. And how have you been able to get out and really build a new life for yourself and stay out of prison? Well, that's one of the things that I have learned from talking to people like the two of you and other former defendants of mine and people who've been to prison and got out is that it seems that the biggest resource that is available to reduce recidivism is not the professional government employees, as important as they are. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really other people who, who you develop these relationships with and who are mentors and who can help you through something because there's an understanding, there's a communication, there's a bond there. There's something that you have that you can help each other out in ways that somebody like me, no matter how well-intentioned I am, I could never fill that role. I could never have that influence. What people like me can do is be smart enough to figure out that you are smarter about these things than we are and that uh, we need to get behind you mm -hmm. and that we need to be removing barriers so that you can move forward in your lives and in your efforts, your missions, and uh, helping other people do the same thing, which is going to be the topic for our next episode when we talk about your fully free program. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chamberlain, I want to thank you for this really enlightening and interesting yes. discussion. Thank you. And Mr. Joyner, it continues yes. to be a privilege to associate with you. I respect yes. you both. Yes, thank thank you. you. So we will now look forward to our next episode when we return to talk to Mr. Chamberlain, uh, Mr. Joyner and I, and we discuss his fully free campaign. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.